Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Hyam. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at MyFirstSketch.com. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You can like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review, whatever platform you get the podcast. All right. I just got home from Sketchybator. Thanks to everyone who came out to our live Sketchybator at Tattooed Mom. It was such a good time. We'll be heading back to Zoom Friday, March 24th at 10 p.m. Eastern. We'll be back at Tattooed Mom sometime this spring. I'll let you know when I know what date for sure. We continue our journey towards this year's Toronto Sketchfest, taking place March 8th through the 19th. With the announcement of the new Curator Program, There are about 70 acts performing in Toronto during the festival. All of the information can be found at torontosketchfest.com. Continuing with our theme, today's guest is Gerald Young, currently a stand-up comedian and a member of Crunchy Tigers, based in Toronto, Ontario. Gerald and his sketch team, Crunchy Tigers, are heading to Toronto Sketchfest Thursday, March 9th at 8pm at Comedy Bar, along with Ladies and Gentlemen International, who actually did the live podcast at Philly Sketchfest 2017. You can listen to that in the archives on episode 51. Gerald's first sketch is called Coming Out. Gerald reads the roles of Danny, a guy on a date, and then when Danny leaves, he reads Andreas, who is the server in the restaurant. I read the role of Steve, the other guy on the date, and I'll give you all the visual information you need to know. So let's go to the sketch. Interior, nice restaurant. Sound effect, Lovie and Rose plays. Steve and Danny sit at an intimate little table. Danny fumbles with his wine glass nervously. Steve beams at the ambiance of his surroundings. Oh my God, I love this place. You're, you are seriously the sweetest guy in the world for taking me here. Steve touches Danny's hand affectionately. Listen, Steve, uh, we need to talk. Is everything okay? I wasn't honest with you when we first met. Uh, you need to know something about me. Sure, anything. Damn it. Ugh. This is hard. Okay, thing is, Steve, I'm gay. Steve regards Danny confused. Wow, wow. It's just out there now. Wow. Sorry, what? Yeah, 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 I know. It's shocking. Uh, it's really going to change things between us. Sorry, but that's it? You're gay? Not so loud. Danny, how long have we been going out? Uh, about four months. And and you know that we're we're both guys, right? Yeah, hell yeah. So I kind of knew already. Oh my god, how could you tell? Is it the way I walk? Oh my god, am I some sort of stereotype? Uh, no, that's not it. Oh, okay, I get it. Just because I'm not this big macho guy, you just assumed all the time that I was gay. You are a homophobe. Jesus, I'm gay too. Okay, <laughs> okay, maybe a little. Danny, we met on Grinder. So? You took me to a bar called Leatherbacks. Okay, you said you liked turtles. I, I, I met your parents. You kissed me on the lips right in front of them. Okay, see, sometimes they like to watch. Okay, listen, I know what's going on here. Uh, my brave uh, coming out process is making you question your own sexuality. Uh, no. And I think you're not ready to be honest with who you are. Nope. But you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. Wow. 
But one day, when you can finally admit that you're gay too. None since I was 11. I'll be waiting. Unless I meet someone else who looks kind of like you, but younger. Oh my god, just get out. Danny stands gracefully, dramatically, camera left. He clutches his heart and breaks away as if he's in a ballet. About to leave the frame, he reaches out longingly. Just go. Danny saunters out of frame, Steve face palms. Andreas, a waiter, enters camera left, carrying a tray with a glass of red wine. Um, here you go. Uh, on the house. Sounded like you needed it. You need this. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, for what it's worth, uh, no guy in his right mind would ever treat you like that. I know I wouldn't. Steve perks up, seeing a new future opening up. That's really nice. Hey, can I stick around until your shift ends? I'd like that. Uh, but you need to know something about me. Of course I do. What is it? I'm gay. You know, that's just fine. My last boyfriend was gay, too. Andre sits down enthusiastic. Seriously? Wow. What are the odds? It's just a coincidence, I guess. Steve and Andreas lean in and start chatting. End scene. Are you a fan of sketch comedy like Monty Python, Key and Peele, and Saturday Night Live? Have you ever wondered why their sketches are funny? Or maybe why that certain sketch didn't make you laugh? On the comedy podcast Sketch Nerds, we aim to answer those questions while having fun talking about the history and craft of sketch comedy. Every episode features a guest to help us break down our favorite sketches, as well as those submitted by listeners like you. So come nerd out with us and listen to Sketch Nerds at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. My name is Samantha Russell. I'm a sketch comedian, and I have a prop and costume hoarding problem. So I figured the best way to get it under control is to start a podcast. On Should I Keep This? I chat with other comedians about their experiences in comedy and our insane prop and costume collections. And on each episode, we both bring a beloved item to discuss whether it's a treasure or just trash. Sometimes it turns out no matter how much money or time we spent on a prop, the only thing we should be holding on to are the memories we've made along the way. So check out Should I Keep This? We have new episodes every two weeks, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, Gerald. Hello, Josh. How are you? So tell me about this sketch. Tell me about this coming out story. Okay. Uh, so that was the, the very first... Uh, well, okay, it's gone through some of a permutation since then, but essentially the very first sketch I wrote for my very first writing class at uh, Second City in Toronto. Um, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the assignment was okay just write something you know you know on, on a date and i think it had been several decades since i've been on one so i said okay you know what, <laughs> let me let me think about that yeah oh you laugh but yeah it's, <laughs> yes because it's, it's definitely wasn't true what i just said um but no i just you know you know I, at that point i was just thinking okay you know what let's not i you know i'm, I'm trying to write a male female couple just to you know to um not to, not, not you know not to trigger anybody in the class but you know what let's stick to what i know yeah I you mean... know yeah. How how long ago was this? Like, oh, was this class six years ago? Okay, yeah, six years ago. Yeah. So so theoretically, people should have been progressive enough to be like a a gay couple to sketch <laughs> like that 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 shouldn't have happened. Yeah, but you know, I didn't want to shock anybody because you know I, I put so for such like a <laughs> like a macho straight energy in every, everything I do. I didn't want didn't want to shock people like oh my god he's gay, you know didn't see that coming. So the assignment was to write a date, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gone wrong, of course. Right. I mean, the conflict of it has to be 
that's where the funny is. So what got you interested in taking a class at at Second City? Was this, had you done like the improv tract or did you go straight to the writing? I did the uh, writing first. Okay. Um, mainly because I'm not a natural performer and uh, at least I don't feel like that I am. And, you know, the concept of just diving straight into an improv class, uh, it was a bit intimidating at first. And then for a while, Second City did actually did have a requirement where you couldn't take writing unless you were t- taking one improv class. That's kind of why I asked, because I, I thought that was a thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thankfully for me, they dropped that. Uh, eventually, it did take improv uh, because, you know, people in my uh, writing group were telling me, OK, you have to take improv, you you fool. <laughs> Stop being such an idiot. Uh, so I eventually did take improv. But um. Oh, so I, I dove straight into the writing uh, writing process right away. So, yeah, what prompted you to take a writing class like this? I was at a point where I wanted to do something a little bit different. And, uh, and yeah, basically, this the second I learned that Second City had dropped its improv slash acting requirement for taking a writing class, I said, okay, yes, that's uh, essentially the comedy gods telling me exactly what to do. Um, so so then I, I started taking it as kind of just a, a, a break from work. And I just recently moved to an office just across the street from Second City, actually. So, you know, my inherent laziness gave me no excuse. But as, at the office. same time, Second City looms large to you daily. Like, it's always there. It's a visual reminder every day for you. Like, I was like kicking you like, hey, come on, come on in. Yeah, yeah. I, and of course, you know, I grew up watching, you know, the SCTV itself. On uh, on Canadian television, and that was a huge inspiration for me, uh, you know, growing up. Although I never thought I'd actually end up doing any sort of comedy at all, but here I am. So before we get into like you know the early days of what you liked with this sketch, how has it changed over the years? Was it first off, was this ever performed on stage? Because it, it it is written to be more uh, filmic. Yeah, it was originally written as a as a, a black box um, stage piece. Yeah. Uh, it, it it became more filmic because somebody asked me to rewrite it to be more okay. filmic. So I'm okay, uh, I'm seeing the film version of a script and okay, yeah. So it's gone through several permutations. Uh, the character of Danny was an even bigger a hole. Okay, in the original draft. Uh, I was told to tone it down a bit, which I'm still not convinced was the right idea because I I don't mind you know having how the how is how is Danny A-holes. a bigger a hole. Oh, trust me, trust me. He 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 body shames and everything. It's like okay, he really, okay. goes, that he really goes deep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was told to tone that down a bit, you know, and then you know to uh, to kind of you know just although you know have more interaction between the two parties at the beginning. Mm. Has it been staged? Have have we put it up? Like, how did it go? You know, I haven't had the chance to stage it yet. Okay, uh, just because uh, although I will now, I think because because of you. Uh, you 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 prompted me to dig this out of my uh, archives. So then, how did, the it go, it how did it go in the room, like at, in the class as you read it? Okay, so uh, how yeah, it got a big laugh right away, which I was uh, surprised by for a variety of reasons. But yeah, right at the tilt when I said I'm gay, and you know people know okay, the same sex couple, then they understood the joke right away, mm-hmm. and then that that was heartening. And the rest of the sketch maybe didn't go as as much as I as well as I planned, but you know you know the first sketch I'd written in you know. In, in full form in you know for a long time <laughs> you know I, I was quite happy you know for as a first time or how it went yeah when when you're in that like educational setting and i always on one hand it's always funny to me that like when people are motivated to take a comedy class like that and they don't and they do sketch first 
like because sketches like to me as an adult sketches the one that has homework and improv generally doesn't (laughs) you know like improv is more come as you are but like you have to go home and, and do something with sketch which i think is always interesting and like a great a great indication of like the commitment that someone has to doing this you know when there's homework involved as an adult like all right good for you and then that in that class setting getting that first laugh is always good because you don't want to be the bad writer in the class. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a good question. I mean, definitely it's, it's, it's heartening. It's not that I would have run home and cried uh, because, of, because of that if, if it didn't work out. I mean, I run home and cry anyways, but for, for different reasons. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, no, it, it was encouraging. And, you know, maybe at a time when I needed some encouragement. Mm. Uh, but, you know, listen, if, if it completely bombed, then I, then I would not have, have known what kind of comedy works. In uh, in the city I live in, were you were you concerned about that then? Funny thing about funny thing is is I wasn't quite sure whether um, you know campy gay jokes would still work in mm. at the time twenty seventeen, but now twenty twenty three. Apparently they still do. Uh, people people still like to laugh at uh, us queens being ridiculous, and and for me, for me that's great because you know that's pretty much ninety percent of my value as a performer. So yeah. <laughs> I I think it's. Uh... The context of who's who's providing that joke like you know queens being ridiculous is one thing i can't be a like as a straight white male it might not be the best thing for me to be the the queen being ridiculous like i don't think it would hit the same way yeah you know maybe not i don't know it's uh i think uh i'm i, I listen if i can play if i can play a a, a straight guy or straight ish guy you know <laughs> i'm sure anybody else can play any other role but you know that's a good question you know, I, Maybe, I think I'll, I'll at least run it. I'll run it by like my LGBTQ yeah. friends. Like, hey, am I good here? How do I fix this? Like, no, definitely. If, if you're going to try to camp it up a bit, you you want to run it by somebody first. Um, if you if you're basically you know going to be Will Truman, I you know, that you're probably on safe ground because right, you know, right, right. It, yeah. which is how I read it. I was I was being Will yeah. Truman. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lisp away. Like I, I know that's probably not the best path for me. If I want to, you know, continue to be an ally and helpful in this industry. Um, all right. So you mentioned watching SCTV growing up. So what were you into as a kid? What 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 was your comedy fandom growing up? So I guess of all the performers at SCTV, and of course they were all uh, terrific. I really one of my com- comedy icons was always Martin Short. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I, I'm not much of a singer, but I just love the way he incorporated almost Broadway quality music into his comedy. And, you know, he wasn't a, he was not the kind of guy that who looked like, you know, he should have been an actor. He's kind of short, he's kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of kind of a short, thin guy like I used to be. Now I'm, I'm still short, but not so thin. Very anymore. unassuming. Yeah, like... very, very unassuming uh, around some very, you know, large personalities. But uh, he really stood out. And of course, when he graduated and. I uh, went on to Saturday Night Live, and you know, in, in that Dreamcast in the '80s, you know, he he even he you know that that was even I even followed him there, and he was in, in, incredible. I also loved uh, you know the um, kind of the, the the dirty comedians back then, you know, Mel Brooks, uh, early Eddie Murphy, uh, mm. <laughs> Richard Pryor, that kind of thing. Um, didn't really you know didn't really bleed into my work, but <laughs> you know, uh, I definitely uh, you know learned uh, uh, learned how to appall people at a young age. I'm okay. I'm I'm gonna ask 
a very curious question here. Like yeah. you mentioned the early Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy's early albums have some very homophobic material on them. Did that hit you in a way growing up? You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, you know, that's a tough question. Uh, you know, do I believe, you know, Eddie Murphy, the guy, I don't think he himself is homophobic because, uh, you know, just from what I've seen, you know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I've, I, I, you know, kind of reminds me, I know it's not the same thing, but it reminds me of uh, In Living Color when they used to do the uh, men on film and on yeah. uh, uh, thing. Um, you know, uh, politically, a, a lot of uh, a lot of gay men, political gay men at the time said, oh, that's offensive, that's homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, but I enjoyed it so much, and I just kept a secret because I didn't want people to know that. I okay, so you were like, yeah. Yeah. But then I've since learned that in hindsight, so many other gay men just love that. Because, it, okay, yeah. yes, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit mean, it's a little bit cutting, but the guy doing it or the guys doing it clearly know a lot of gay guys to base us on. So, and, you know, um, and, you know, it, it you know, it, it's, um, you know, so I guess, it, I guess it, it's, it's, an, uh, it, it's a, it's a balancing act. And I know, I know, I don't want to fall back on the cliche that, oh, well, you know, it's the seventies and, you know, and people didn't know, you know, back then now that's not, that's kind of a lazy excuse, I think, but yeah, I think it's up to the individual, whether, you know, you, you find it hateful or not, because again, you know, like, you know, it, it, uh, it, it depends where it's coming from, how authentic it is, I know it's a very strange word, but um, a, a lot of you know, a lot of comedians still make fun of 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 gay people, and sometimes they'd be quite funny because you know even though they're not gay themselves, they clearly know a lot of us, <laughs> and they're clearly basing it on truth. And uh, you know, if, if if you can see a lot of yourself and what the what the guy's making fun of, uh, you know, it's okay to laugh. I think. Right, I think, and this this goes back to something I wrote a couple years ago, like where someone did like kind of call me out about it. I was like. Oh, I'm not stereotyping. I'm basing this on one specific person that I saw in the like in the supermarket that day. Like this person was ridiculous. And it wasn't I don't think it was a gay thing, but whatever it was, I was like, I'm not I'm not trying to stereotype an entire thing, a, an entire people group. But this one dude that I saw was bonkers and I think we could put it on stage too. Like which I I wonder like if if there is a difference between basing a character on you know that personal experience versus versus stereotyping whether the writer has the intention or whether or not to do that like you know that, that's an excellent question um uh what i what will say is that uh you know you know you know when you write especially for a performance it's a it's a it's an it's act of you're creating art basically um and art pretty much exists to be criticized and yes, you know, what you do with that concept you create, uh, you know, is up for criticism. And that can include, you know, accusations that, oh, it's, you know, uh, you're this and that, whatever. Which, which is fine. Um, you know, some people come from a, from, from a background where they've experienced, you know, personal pain themselves. And, and that may be, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe what's yeah. coming to the fore there. I guess, I guess that maybe at the end of the day, I'm the last person to give advice on political correctness to anybody uh, <laughs> watching this right now, trust me. Um, but I guess the question is why, why is it funny? Are you laughing at the person because of what they are or are you laughing because of their just being that, you know? Yeah. And, right. it, and, and their personal or sexual orientation is almost irrelevant. 
or or you know their their, their gender identity is almost irrelevant. And if you can point to the fact that you know you're not laughing because of that, you're laughing because they're they're being that ridiculous. Right. One of my friends down here in in Philadelphia, like one of his credos about writing is celebrate weirdness, not make yeah. fun of it. Like, so if we can find the way, and that's something that I am trying to be, I try to be mindful of when I write a ridiculous character or something is like, yeah, let's celebrate the weirdness of this person that we're creating or, you know, the observation that I made that I'm going to try to finagle into a comedy sketch. Let's celebrate this, this weird person's, why was this dude wearing a bathrobe and slippers coming into the store? Are you, are you sure it's not me that you're writing about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but no, I think that's that's definitely a, a great uh, viewpoint. It, it's um, you know, it, I I guess my the you know and and you know when when I when I in my sketch troupe sometimes we deal with material which is okay. Are we should we we be, we be doing this or not? And one of my first tests is are are we is it funny? Are, is a is it funny? And you know are we are and are we getting the best possible funny out of this? I.e., mm. celebrating weirdness, not celebrating, not not making fun of difference, but making fun of, uh, making fun of, I guess, eccentricity in and of yeah. itself. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. Back to before we, you know, break down in the whole PC culture of comedy these days. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, watching SCTV and Martin Short and following him in SNL. I ask everybody, I'm always curious, who would be your favorite SNL cast member of all time? Oh, of all time. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. I would go with Harry Shearer. Really? So for me, like, Harry Shearer is an interesting choice because, he, like, in every interview I've ever heard him speak about, he absolutely hated both times he was on SNL. He did the gig twice and either got quit or fired in the middle of the season both times. It's so bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason he stands out, and you know, of course, yeah, it wasn't a happy time for him. But um, uh, you know, a he, you know, he was one of the better cast members in a time when the show wasn't that great. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, I'm a fan of the Vancouver Canucks, where they're one of the worst hockey teams in the history of the NHL. So anytime a player stands out in <laughs> in our worst years, I always tend to think about them quite fondly. Uh, but one thing I like about Harry Shearer is he, he at a time before it was cool to do kind of conceptual surrealistic deadpan stuff he was doing all of that mm. uh right at a time when you know may maybe you know comedy was still very much you know pratfalls and uh and uh, you know off very obvious jokes about richard nixon you know he was uh in a swimming pool uh with martin short <laughs> pretending to do uh uh, synchronized swimming, you know, with the nose plugs and everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he kind of stood out as being one of the, you know, one of the, the few, one of the first, like, what I call the smart comedians of of, of the SNL age. Yeah, because, I mean, growing up and seeing that synchronized swimming bit, for, well, first off, that was the first time I knew that Martin Short was on the show, like, mm -hmm. previously. And it was the first time I, I'd, I feel like I'd seen something like that because there was a time, you know, in me growing up watching SNL that they really didn't do filmed pieces outside the studio like my era of starting to watch snl they did the cartoon more than the 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 filmed piece like it was the tv funhouse things more so so i was like oh this is way different than anything i've been seeing in the late 90s i'll say like and and this is weird and this is fun and i mean we can talk about harry Shear so much because i feel like he's you know the quote-unquote straight man of the piece of, of singing high swimming but 
Martin Short saying, I'm not that strong a swimmer is one of the funniest things I had ever seen at that point. Like, yeah, and of course, I mean, that sketch is a dream, obviously, for me, because, uh, you know, I, I, Martin Short's my comedy idol, and I'm a big fan of Harry Shearer, but I just love the fact that he's, uh, you know, the, the, there's certain art to being the straight man, and him delivering what, what would otherwise be fairly, you know, gray exposition, yeah. while his, you know, clueless brother <laughs> is right there. Um, it really helped animate uh, that that particular piece, and, you know, that's one a lot, a lot, you know, even now, you know, people... You know, people make jokes about that sketch when they see uh, um, artistic swimming or whatever they call it now in the Olympics. You know, people still make that joke now. And, you know, for a sketch from the 80s when SNL wasn't maybe that memorable, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, the fact that that's still that's still part of what 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 what, what people uh, remember is uh, quite amazing. Harry Shearer is a very interesting person to me because it, it, it feels that if he's not in a large portion of his control of control over the product that he's on he doesn't seem to enjoy it like I, I don't get again with interviews i've heard him talk about i don't think he likes the simpsons anymore where he just comes in as a hired gun to do voices now like i i know from personal experience that me being curmudgeonly and uh and and hating your job sometimes makes you excel at it i mean he's, I'll go he's great you. like like he's he's so good. The fact that you know that there are certain scenes in The Simpsons where he's basically just talking to himself. I can't do that. But you're right. I I actually didn't know about that. Then, but come to think of it, yeah, yeah, I can kind of I can remember scenes where he would essentially be uh, doing his own thing. And you know, maybe I'm channeling a bit of my inner Waylon Smithers in that. <laughs> I've, I've been I've been told I'm I'm becoming Waylon Smithers as I get older and older, which is I, I think it meant to be an insult. <laughs> I imagine, but um, uh, but yeah, no, but yeah. I mean, the fact that you know, you know, his own attitudes towards you know his his work notwithstanding, uh, yeah, I I do I do love that uh, that kind of you know, you know, pained workmanlike performance of, of some of, of some of what he does. It speaks yeah, to I me mean, as as somebody myself. Sometimes who has to like trudge through everything. I mean, he's a kind of comedy genius. He just seems like a grump yeah. to me. Yes, throw my. All right, so for you, what come what came first? Like, because I, I know you're stand up as well. So, what did you do first? Did you go as a stand up, or did you do a sketch? Or a uh, sketch came first. So you had a full adult life. Yes, yes. I, I, I you know, I started uh, comedy, uh, you know, relatively uh, late in life. I'd already, yeah, I'd moved to Toronto to work on finance and uh, in our equivalent of Wall Street for several years. Yeah, I decided to, to do this as a hobby, and it kind of took on a life of its own. Like, I'm stunned by that because. I thought when I started getting into it, like 25, I was starting too late. And now, granted, like, I, I think now uh, of the certain people, and I use SNL as the example, but like Leslie Jones didn't get on the show until she was like in her mid 40s. Michael McKean was also in his mid 40s. So like Phil Hartman, like the patron saint of Saturday Night Live, didn't start doing comedy until he was like 30 something. So I shouldn't be too surprised sometimes. Um, You know, I I, I, I find that if I had done, I mean, sometimes I wonder, like, for example, I, I, I you know Toronto is, is kind of, if you want to, you know, in, in Canada, and, you know, if you want to uh, learn this trade, Toronto is where you kind of, you know, should be. Uh, this is, it's where our second city is and, and, and so forth. And uh, it's, it's uh, where the, the greatest uh, urine soaked clubs in Canada can be found. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've always wondered if I didn't, you know, after 
you know, in in my early 20s, I had to move to Toronto right away instead of going back to Vancouver. You know, whether, you know, whether things would be different. I don't know if 20-year-old me would have been as funny as as me when I started. Do you think you need, the, the, like, life experience? Uh, I think you need something that ha- would have made, ha- has made you funny. Um, and the reason I, I started doing this and started kind of developing what I came is that because... Um, so I was taking an improv class, and uh, they wanted me to act out a scene. I forget what it was, but uh, I think I, I was, you know, narrating a nature documentary or something like that. And I, you know, one sentence in, and the instructor started laughing at me, and he laughed, laughing, and I said, "Okay, you know." He started. He had his top. It's so like, "Okay, watch the No, I didn't. I just Cheryl. I, I love the kind of uptight nerd you're playing right now. And I was like, "Well, oh, that's." <laughs> wasn't playing anything that's just how i talk <laughs> you know uh but yeah I, I so you know i think you know i think the fact that you know my my personality my my what you know whatever personality that i've developed over the years since since becoming you know kind of the old twisted thing i am um has actually you know has, has given me that kind of comedic voice that uh that maybe me in my 20s uh, wouldn't have had hmm okay so okay so the that sketch class at at Second City was the first step for anything com- comedy wise for you. Pretty much, yeah. The first serious step. I mean, you know, oh, okay. I had done imp- little improv things here and there. I had written jokes for like corporate speeches before. Uh, but yeah, it was my first time really just going out there on my own. Hmm. Okay, so then like where does stand up start for you? So I fell in with a um with with a a, a sketch group uh, that a friend of mine started. It was a pro wrestling themed sketch group called Wrestling Without Wrestling. Um, and, um, uh, you know, kind of imagine, I don't even remember, SCTV, the setting was, a you know, a crappy uh, television station in Mellonville, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we kind of took that concept, okay, what of a very, very poorly run pro wrestling, pro wrestling uh, company? Um, uh, and, and we kind of took it, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of my colleagues, uh, cast members in that uh, group were also stand-up comics as well. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd seen them perform. Uh, and everything, and that that gave me the I, you know, and it, it, it to be honest, deep down inside, I've always wanted. I stand up was where I actually really wanted to do. Okay. Um, but going out there performing as yourself or a version of yourself that would seem so intimidating at first. So I think I think sketch actually helped me do mm-hmm. that because essentially, okay, no, doing it myself. I'm I'm going out there playing a character who happens to the same name as me. Uh, but he's a comedian and not not does you know it's just some guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's it's certainly easier to be. I, I mean, and all like, the thought of like there are possibly going to be depending on you know the piece that you're doing. There's other people there too. Like you're not mm-hmm. alone on the stage. You're in a scene with other people. It takes a little bit of the like that stress and that headache off. Now, granted, when you get into like doing monologues and character pieces by yourself, then it ramps up a little bit more, but you're still not yourself on stage mm-hmm. for the most part. How was that first experience doing stand-up? You know, I, I, again, going back to Harry Shearer, when you're a little bit angry and a little bit uh, disgruntled, you can, you'd be amazed at the, the, <laughs> the great work you can do because you just don't care anymore. So, you know, I, of course, you know, I'd taken a class at Second City doing stand-up and I had, you know, done stand-up in a very controlled environment full of people that were paid to clap at me apparently but then you know i said you know what let's just go with it i started doing open mics and uh and i would go into open mics in the suburbs 
or out of the outskirts of the city and just go like straight into my dirtiest, gayest material. <laughs> and and it worked. And, and people, people, people liked it. Uh, and just because, just because I, for me, it was just just go out there, you know. If it, if it goes ter- terribly horribly wrong, then it goes terribly horribly wrong. You know, don't care about that. What was going out into the suburbs like an active strategy for you? Uh, see, oh, that that was the uh, I, I yes, I I wanted to bomb in front of people who wouldn't remember who I was. Yeah. You know, so if I would go up to the, um, I guess you're Philadelphia, right? If I went out to yeah. the clubs in Mal- Malvern, <laughs> you know where that is, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I've got friends who 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 work who work in in, in Philadelphia, so they tell that I know what Mal- where Malvern is. Um, you know, if I went out to a, like a small, that's not even a comedy bar; it's just like a bar in Malvern, and and completely, you know, crap the bed. Nobody's going to remember who I am. Right. I, I certainly I, I've never done stand up, but I certainly wouldn't want to do stand up in a situation where anyone possibly knows who I am. Yes. Which I think I think is one of the things that has stopped me from doing it like here in Philadelphia, because there's always the chance of, oh, I, I know that person. Oh, well, I don't want to like. Like, unless it, there's like maybe like, there's like six people that I would be comfortable in that situation, but I would want to be almost completely anonymous, completely blank slate. If it doesn't go well, none of my friends seen it. No other like mutuals that I might know have seen it. So it can just disappear into the ether. Like, but why would why would you feel uh, intimidated? Because you know Philadelphia crowds are so supportive and warm. I'm curious about this wrestling without wrestling thing. What was that about? Um. So yeah, I had a very good friend. Hello, Johnson. Yes, I, I'm. I'm one of the eight uh, openly gay pro wrestling fans in the world. Okay. Uh, now, why there aren't more of us, I don't know. Because you got ripped guys half naked rolling around with each other every week I, on free I, TV. I think I think oh, there's I don't more know than what, eight. What's not to like. I think there's know? more than eight for sure. Nine. I met several friends who you know were smart, educated people who still liked uh, WWE and and its various federations. It, it's it's like the like very macho cabaret act. Yeah, in a, absolutely. In a way. You know, and it did help me come up with my own uh, persona when I did stand up as well, because you know the. Uh, uh, you know, the great uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he basically, you know, would tell people that your wrestling personality is just you turn up to like 11. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, the the ethos I took on to do comedy. But yes, we started, we, yeah, we started just doing a little little pro wrestling themed uh, sketch comedy comedy troupe. And um, yeah, you know, we, we did a lot of great stuff there, kind of local, regional uh, things. But, uh, you know, if you think about it, pro wrestling is a lot like sketch comedy. In a way, uh, we just we just took out the athletic training part of it. So you know? there was like, because I know that there had, I mean, I know because I've been in them, but like yeah. there have been comedy pro wrestling shows where comedians create matches. So so you didn't have like a match necessarily within these shows. Um, Not not a real one. Because uh, definitely, yeah, it's dangerous, and you know, it, you know, it's insulting to the people who actually train very hard to do this for a living. Uh, Some of the wrestlers we, we... get involved in these comedy shows, so yeah, yeah, no, that's true, that's true, that's true. But like, I've got, you know, yeah, I even, I even attend like, like kind of, you know, regional shows as well, mm-hmm. just just because uh, uh, that's that's we uh, could for fun. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely do respect people who people who do it, you know, for real. Um, and uh, you know, for, for us, it was like. Um, We'll, we'll we can do uh we, we can do the kind of ridiculous in-character interviews which can be funny 
especially if they go poorly. Um, we can do area. We can do kind of uh, guy caballero sketches, you know, about the inner workings of the actual company that uh, that you know pays people to punch each other in the face. Yeah, uh, which is inherently funny in of itself, and uh, yeah, and then we, and we, you know, we, we could, it, it gives, it, believe it or not, it gave us a lot of um, a creative freedom to to explore new things because, you know, you can create like a brand new eccentric character to do just for one sketch only, and it makes sense in a pro wrestling sketch because it can be like, okay, yeah, we have this new character, the uh, you know, uh, the Chicken Man <laughs> or something. Uh, and just you know, and you don't have to explain why the chicken man's there. Yeah, uh, he's just there because yes, the, the whole point of this is in- introducing ridiculous characters that that should not exist in re- real life. Yeah, we because uh, I know here in Philadelphia about ten years ago there was a, a show during our French festival called Pro Mania, which I wrote for, and it was it eventually became one of the like, just exhausting, tiring existence like parts of my existence, and I actually like I stopped doing comedy for like nine months to like recharge my batteries and everything after it because we did like four live shows and there was a ton of drama behind the scenes with it but i know like ucb had a, a wrestling comedy show uh one of the other new york theaters did i can't remember what it's called extremely serious or something like that where like they eventually did get like the independent you know on the rise pro wrestlers to come and show up and do things like I mean, I don't know how much what you're watching, but like Orange Cassidy from yes, AEW has a cult following because of these comedy shows. One of the referees in AEW is a sketch comedian in Philadelphia. So like the comedy and wrestling world always intersects. It's always been a thing. There's always been comedy and wrestling. Like, so now we're just taking wrestling into comedy too. Yeah, I mean, they both have the kind of... uh uh you know, uh, I'm getting in trouble for saying this, but they both have the kind of carny attitude at the end of the day. Sometimes, you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's how, you know, wrestling was kind of in, uh, invented, you know, with, yeah. with the kind of traveling, uh, traveling shows and, and whatnot. And, you know, every, every stand-up comedian is a carny at heart. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like, I mean, wrestling was kind of like the vaudeville of the carnivals yeah. instead of the theater system. Exactly, exactly. In a way. I'm always curious when I talk to people that do stand up and sketch, like, how do you come to the point? How do you decide what idea, what concept you have goes to which discipline? Like what goes to a stand up for you? What goes a sketch to you? Like, is there, is there a thought process for you in that way? You know, I mean, often enough, there isn't, I, I, uh, I regularly use stand up to test jokes that will eventually be incorporated into a sketch. And I have used sketch comedy to uh, uh, to workshop jokes that will eventually be used um, uh, by me on by me doing standup. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of material for both uh, that way. It's it's you know it's a, it's a it's a very lazy way of workshopping things. And it's it's kind of very smart too because like I always think of it as that there is a divide between. This oh this idea goes to my my stand up world. This idea will go to my sketch world. Like using one to you know help the other makes way more sense now. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, part of the reason is I'm, I'm I'm nowhere near famous enough for people to remember uh, where, where where I've done jokes before. <laughs> so uh, that that does help. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's true. It, it, you know, funny is funny. The 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 queenie jokes I tell in sketch comedy can just just work work as well as the queenie jokes i tell 
uh, mm. when I'm doing stand-up. Yeah, they may just meet a, a slightly different setup. Yeah. All right, so tell me about the advent of Crunchy Tigers. Ah, okay. So, um, you know, at the time, I was, you know, between between sketch groups, and uh, uh, a, a lot of... Um, uh, of peers of mine were telling me, you know, Gerald, why don't you just start your own sketch group? You know, we've uh, we've seen your writing, and and you know, why not, you know, put on the, the the sketch comedy group that you want to put on? You know, at the same time, it it was during the time when uh, I know most a lot of American cities are back in full force, but Toronto, we're still reopening a little bit. You know, the the, the it's been a gradual reopening uh, post pandemic in Toronto, and a lot of the um uh, I mean, the hardest thing about sketch comedy for me is finding the venue for yeah. it. Uh, finding the right venue where you don't need, you know, a, a great microphone setup. Uh, the acoustics are okay. It's big enough and small enough at the same time. That's really hard. Um, and at the time, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the venues uh, were very uh, were, were actually quite eager to try out uh, new, new acts. So there, there had been a lot of a lot of attrition uh, yeah. since 2020. Um, so I said, you know what, this is this is really the best time for me to do this because I have all this material just saved up. That I've never either not put on stage or not put on stage the way I wanted to. Um, so I, I then I so I said, okay, what should I do? What what should I do exactly? Um, you know, a lot of people, non not non Asian people, were telling me that oh, you should really do you know a sketch comedy show uh, kind of centered around uh, Asian performers. Um, no, I'm never really one to to be about kind of identity politics or identity comedy, uh, mm-hmm. but at least it, it gave me some thought because. Uh, you know, you know, should I should should I do that? Um, then, uh, you know, I started looking around the city and and seeing where people are going, and I saw that well, the people. It's not maybe not, not so much about what I want, um, but it's about there's an audience out there for that. You know, uh, then that's what we want to see. And I was never really in. I, I call Crunchy Tigers an Asian infused sketch comedy show. Mm-hmm. So we like that time, you know, when McDonald's makes a makes a teriyaki burger on on Chinese New Year every year. Uh, we're about as authentic as that, I think. <laughs> so you know, I, I uh, yeah, it, we're Asian infused, not like entirely Asian. We have a lot of performers from all all, all over the uh, all over the magical rainbow. You know, I, and again, heavily inspired by In Living Color. Uh, you know, a show uh, that that definitely you know uh, was en- engineer uh, meant to feature a lot of uh, up and coming, uh, brilliant African American performers, but also gave rise to you know a lot of. Uh, 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 a lot of uh, white performers as well, including, you know, Toronto's own Jim Carrey. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that. You know what? As long as I not, I, I don't try to, you know, hit the identity angle too much because I still want this show to be damn funny. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll make it infused because it's def- definitely something that the audience and the performers want to see. But at the same time, I want, I, 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 I definitely want to make it so humor- by any means necessary, is is still the number one job. It does Crunchy Tigers have a set cast, or does it rotate like month to month, show to show? So we have a, a casting pool of about fourteen performers now. Okay. Uh, the the reason I I built it that way is you know, um, uh, local comedy being what it is, not everybody can make every show on a monthly yes, basis, yeah. and I definitely wanted a consistent okay fourth week, uh, fourth Friday. Every month we do it, uh, you know. Even though we're, you know, even though again we're kind of a, we're a local show, I still wanted a sense of uh, of, uh, of of professionalism around that. That okay, well, this is our this is our monthly target. 
we hit it or you know or you know why are we doing this um and in order in, in order to have a critical mass of cast you you need you know you, you need a, a pool uh to draw on so not everybody can make it every month so, but usually we have a critical mass of between six and eight performers okay. um and it, it's it's somewhat rotating in the fact that not everybody makes it every month uh which is which is with the original intention and do all the performers write like what's the writing process for Hundred tigers we have a good mix of uh people who are mainly interested in performing um but they they, they want uh, you know compelling original material to, to do it with um we have a lot of uh of of combined actor actor writers uh, who are absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then there's a few people like, and then there's myself who is a writer primarily and has to, you know, hold himself at gunpoint to go on stage. So I think we've, <laughs> we've got a good mix of all three. In the producer role, is is it just you or do you have like within that 14, is there a team that helps you with booking, with, you know, all the admin that comes, that we always get surprised with, with, with sketch comedy that we have to do? <laughs> oh, no, it's so easy. No, it's no, the, no most of the admin tasks just fall to me. I am okay. perfectly willing to uh, perfectly willing to farm <laughs> these out, but for the time being, we're still we're still a relatively young organization. I'm still trying to figure out best practices. Uh, I have had the um, privilege of uh, working, uh, help helping to co-produce several shows, you know, for the past couple of years in and around Toronto, um, and uh, I've learned from some of the um, best local producers, uh, secretly stealing secrets from them about how to do uh, yeah. how to do administrative tasks very efficiently. Uh, but right now it's just me, but, you know, definitely, you know, we're trying to evolve that. You mentioned something about, like, the the bars and venues in Toronto, like, having that desire for programming. So I want to ask, like, you you started writing, you took this class in 2017, got about three years under your belt doing other stuff, and then pandemic happens. What was the pandemic like for you as a creative person? Uh, you know, it was a bit of a shock at first. Uh, I naively thought that, okay, this is just going to go on for a month. And then we'll be, be back to normal and we can get back to normal uh, soon enough. Um, obviously, I was dead wrong about that, wasn't I? Uh, we all were. We all of yeah. us were. So don't don't feel too bad. Yeah, but it did give me um, it did. It did give me a, 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 a way of kind of rethinking uh, comedy in a way. Uh, you know, you can see me speaking on this microphone right here, right? Uh, for some strange reason, I had been talked into buying a podcasting set, even though I'm not a podcaster. Uh, but that was before the pandemic. So by the time the pandemic actually actually happened, this 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 monstrosity was shipped to my to my condo. Uh, so it, so I suddenly found myself very well equipped for for a uh, for a uh, uh, civilization ending event. Um. You know, and uh, and you know, it gave me it gave me the the opportunity to okay, I have all this equipment, so I you know all the stuff that's happening now, where, where people are trying to reinvent comedy a comedy during a pandemic era, I'm suddenly find myself remarkably equipped for, uh, at least on a technical basis, you know. <laughs> so so it 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 did give me a sense to both relax a bit, a little bit. Okay, nobody's being nobody's making any money right now. Nobody is is you know is getting any venues at all anymore. So let's just go on Zoom shows and work on being funny. Uh, work on telling jokes in a relaxed, low impact, low stakes atmosphere. Um, you know, and if, if you do want, if you want to do one show a week, that's great. If you want to do two shows, two shows a week, that's fine. 
if you want to do one show a month, that's fine too. Uh, because it doesn't really matter right now, you know. Um, and I think I think that really helped because it, it gave me some perspective in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, not 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 be too caught up in in okay, where where, where am I being booked next? Yeah. You know, where, where how am I going to get to, you know, this gig in in you know Oshawa, which is for you like you know if you had a gig in Pittsburgh, <laughs> how am I going to get there? You know. <laughs> Um, that was no longer in play anymore. With the Zoom shows, uh, so, with the Zoom shows, yeah. were you doing stand up more than sketch then? You know, I was doing both, and I again, I had the uh, privilege of uh, working with um, Good News Toronto, which is uh, another um, you know, if anybody from Toronto is watching this, and another uh, fellow participant in, in 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 the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival, uh, and I had the you know great fortune of again learning uh, how to do Zoom comedy through them. Uh, Essentially, a live sketch comedy troupe um, that uh, that was forced to go um, uh, online, <laughs> mm. as many were. Uh, it, I think, but being a current events oriented uh, show, it actually adapted quite well. And uh, you know, I had the opportunity to work, yeah, work for a sketch comedy troupe for almost a year before I actually met any of my fellow cast members. <laughs> that which is so wild to me, like yeah. that we were in the start, like oh. I finally can see you in person. Like you're not just, you know, a picture on my screen anymore. Yeah. I was, I was amazed people, people who I thought were, uh, shorter than, than I thought were <laughs> you know, smaller than I thought they were. They were. So that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So tell me about, uh, with good news in Toronto. So you started with them during the pandemic then? Yeah. Well, that wasn't the intent. The intent was for us to, to, uh, uh, to go into a full, uh, live glory and then the sketch and then, yeah, the, the pandemic happened and and uh and they became an online only sketch group for a while um, which i th- i think because i i host a, a you know a zoom open mic for sketch comedians where we just read stuff but like the idea of actually like trying to perform sketch comedy over zoom sounds pretty terrible to me and seeing some of the zoom content the the zoom based content over the last 20 years like over the last two years I'm very tired of it already. So like on one hand, I don't think zoom comedy is for me, but I think a show like good news Toronto, where it it does have that satirical current event news basis probably would work better than if I was trying to pretend that all of us on a zoom call, were all in the same setting. You know, we were all just like trying to be in the same sketch. Yeah, that's true because you know, as a sketch comedian, as a sketch comic, you you never realize the power of you know the um, defamiliarized black box setting until mm. it's gone, right? You can't put you you, you on stage. You can you can all pretend to be from you know you can all pretend to be in ancient Rome, if you want. Uh, it, you can't really do that on Zoom because suddenly when something becomes video, when something gets filmed on you know broadcast on on video, it suddenly becomes way more literal. Yeah. And and you have to figure out okay why are we why are these people talking on 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 you know on, on Zoom or telecommuting so it really limits what you can do as a, as a pure sketch comedy group yeah that being said as a, a current events uh, satire it did definitely worked well for us um, and in fact we were able to actually do things creatively that we couldn't do on stage one of my favorite sketches was uh, around Christmas time we had a. a, a a sketch where somebody is online shopping and they have to uh, 
uh, answer an increasingly uh, uh, offensive line of captcha questions. <laughs> you know, uh, we could that that only that could only work in that environment, right? We couldn't. We, there's no way we could do it on stage uh, in in an efficient way at yeah. all. For an audience that has never seen Crunchy Tigers, how would you describe like the brand of comedy? What to expect for them to come into? Weird comedy done by weird people okay. that weirdly celebrates, you know, our Toronto's diversity. That's how I I would put it, and. Uh, and definitely, there are no subjects off limits, no uh, subject matters off limits, and I, 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 and we, you know, even though yes, identity is part of it, we try to, we try, we try to bring com, you know, sketch comedy back into it, into, into very, very, very pure form. If anybody accuses me of doing anything uh, socially redeeming, I, I'll sue them for de- defamation. <laughs> How dare they! Yes. Whenever I talk to Canadians, I always ask is there, if there's a piece of Canadian pop culture that an American should, should search out. Something that like might not have been a huge success already, like Shit's Creek, you know, something that's a little under the radar for us to hunt down. Well, one of my uh, my my favorite, uh, and I'm going to start with an American show. Yeah, the American uh, situation comedy, How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts of that show was definitely, uh, you know, Robin Shabatsky. Uh, you know, a, a Canadian playing a fake Canadian living in New York. Um, but one of the most amazing things on that show was her. Uh, secret alter ego as a Canadian pop star. Robin Sparkles. Yeah, Robin Sparkles. Uh, what I absolutely love about that is, is even though it's an American show, you guys managed to perfectly capture <laughs> the, the, the kind of happy, silly, unintentional silliness of the Canadian pop scene in the 80s and 90s. And definitely I would encourage you know, all, all Americans to look deeper into Canadian synth pop in the 80s. Uh, okay. Some of it was good, and some of it was is is unintentionally funny because just because it, it, was, it was a very earnest, very earnest attempt to to in many ways I'm gonna I'm gonna assault people, insult people out there. I really don't care because there's a little, there's, there's a lot of awful music being made in this country back then. Um, is there any like particular but, bands that like you would oh, point to? God, God. Um, you know, you know, no, I, I, just, just, just go in there, look up Canadian <laughs> pop in the eighties, and, and, and decide for yourself. I, I won't, I won't bring up any names because I'm sure I'm going to run, run into some of these people one day. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to get the, uh, the, the savage beating I wish for. Um, yeah. but it, it's matter. There's, there's so much of it. It's like, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's try to copy what Americans are trying to, trying to do by copying the, the British. And <laughs> it's like. Well, I mean, the idea that, like, I, I just saw uh, the stage show Jagged Little Pill recently. Yes. And it, you know, reminded me that Alonzo Morissette was a pop star before Jagged Little Pill, that record. Like, her first two records, and I don't know how successful they were, because I was six years old or whatever it was when they came yeah. out. But, like, I, I, I haven't gone for them or listened to them, but I do have that morbid curiosity of, like, what was Alanis Morissette like as a pop star? Okay, great example. Great example. Okay, because <laughs> because a she's so successful now and so beloved that we can and we can we can kind of tease her a bit and nobody gets hurt. Uh, but no, they make we, we I did write a sketch about uh, about people people obsessing over Alanis Morissette um a, a little bit in in Good News and. Yeah, again, the rev- big revelation came is I just mentioned offhand. Oh, you know, remember when we used to be a dance pop uh, uh, diva, <laughs> and people go to me, "What? 
what? No. I went on YouTube and, you know, we brought up uh, Too Hot from Alanis when it was just like, I think she had two N's in her name back then. And Jaws hit the floor. And, uh, and people, we had no idea this existed. You know, uh, dance music Alanis. But perfect example of like soulless written by committee uh, Canadian pop music. That, you know, the, her, you know, again, we, we all know what she's capable of now. So we can kind of, you know, you know, <laughs> so... you know, but you know, just like we just like we'll just put in random hip hop samples from every every popular uh, American rap song was that was you know in the early nineties. We'll just string a bunch of uh, random samples together to make it sound street, <laughs> you know. Like so, I went, I quickly just you know went to her Wikipedia page and scrolled down and it talks about like her first single, "Too Hot," reached the top twenty. Uh, it led to her popularity and made her known as the Debbie Gibson of Canada, like, which is already five years past Debbie Gibson, I feel, time. Like, it's... So, like, the joke might be, like, the Canadians and the Christians always take the musical trends two or three years too late. That's true. That's true. Although, although I will I will say that in terms of uh, of, of unpretentious rock music, we are, we are way ahead of you guys on that. Front. <laughs> <laughs> That's Go probably true. <laughs> Who was that? Sheepdogs. Sheepdogs, okay. Well, I'll yeah, to the look, list. Look them up, look them up. They're terrific bands from Saskatchewan. I ask everybody at the end, as we're winding down, as we get to the end of it, the first thing is, I mean, you you did take a class at Second City, and multiple classes at Second City, but after doing this for a few years now, like, what's a piece of advice that you would give to a new sketch writer? I guess the, the advice I give to a new sketch writer is don't be afraid to try to be funny. And and I I know that's a strange thing to say, say but I've I've encountered and I'm guilty of this myself sometimes too. Is that uh, sometimes you get in your own way, and you become too caught up in the premise and point of view of a sketch. Hmm, interesting. Uh, that that you forget that you're supposed to attempt jokes. <laughs> uh and, and you know the uh, you know we we were taught point of view, we're taught premise, we're taught the game. But think of it as a stool, right? It's it's uh, the point of view is just one leg of that stool. Uh, not it's not it's not the whole, entire thing. And I think I think I think so many people said, oh, we want you know we we I don't I don't want to try that joke because what if it doesn't what if what if nobody laughs? He goes, well then then it didn't work. But at least you know try to tell a joke when try to put as hack as many jokes or laugh points in your sketch as possible. It doesn't matter whether you think they, you know, whether they work or not. They don't then, you know, lesson learned. But, you know, try it or if the alternative, don't try it rather than not trying or rather than just having a bunch of, you know, exposition or story development or point of view development in the sketch because people don't show up for that. You know, yeah, you're, it, you're, not, you're not telling much of a story in a five minute sketch that way. In during the pandemic, as it started, I took a like a, a Zoom class with the Groundlings in L.A. And the dude was like. I should know everything about the story of your sketch in the first two lines. You don't need to go deeper than that. Like in that first line, no matter how clunky you make it, where they are, what they're doing, all of that should be relatively easily put out there. And then you can worry about, and then go funny. Like don't like, yeah. Cause we're not telling the, you know, great Epic story in five minutes. We're telling you a little piece of, of daily life. So we don't need to be very like precious about that. I, don't, I agree. I, I kind of agree with that. Like, and I kind of feel like the point of view matters the least 
<laughs> like sometimes. No, I, I I don't disagree with you, which is a very weaselly thing to say. We we weaselly answer to that. What what I will say is that I I think I think point of point of view is is an an element of a sketch, but it's not the thing that you base entire sketch around. Right. Right. That yeah. Uh, and also another another misconception about point of view is a point of view does not have to be smart and profound. Also true. Uh, and and yeah. that's a big thing with sketch comedians. Like, I think there's a lot of people that are afraid to be dumb or afraid yeah. to be stupid or silly. When that's going to be the best thing. Yeah, I mean, Sideshow Bob repeatedly stepping on the same rake over and over again is a point of view. Right. <laughs> Believe it or not, you know, and, and it, it's it's stupid, but it was, it's so damn funny. No. hilarious yes um, and then finally you come to comedy after you know being an adult for years having a successful job moving to toronto why comedy why has comedy been the next stage of your life now why go for comedy instead of like joining a bowling league or however other time you can spend your hobby time after work <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, first, I'll dispute you on a few points there. I, I don't. I don't feel I'm that successful as an adult, to be honest. Uh, and um, I'm still not convinced that I've matured that much. I guess it's a way that you're. you're at a, I'm. I'm at a stage where I can kind of explore other things for fun. Mm. Like for example, I remember when I was young, I really wanted to be a a uh, a journalist. Uh, for instance, and uh, you know, fortunately, that's an industry that has <laughs> has uh, shrunk, shrunk uh, quite uh, significantly. Um, but I I'm, sometimes when you when you're so intense on achieving a career goal that is not necessarily very intuitive, you know, uh, that you know, it's you know, your your success can often be pure luck or being in the right places at the right time. Um, worrying about what your next step is going to be career-wise can actually inhibit your your effectiveness like you know similarly i'm thinking if i was a young person you know just really trying to make a living in comedy thinking that oh my god you know if i don't get this next gig that's it i'm done you know well you're not going to be that funny yeah if you're yeah. worried if you, if you if you're concerned too much about uh things like that so i th I, th I think in, in in many ways you know um realizing where i am in life uh, helps help me become again funnier, not because of life experience, but just because of the fact that uh, no, I can I can um, just show up to a place and just focus on making the audience laugh, rather than worrying about oh well you know is, is, if are people going to like me <laughs> to hire me again, <laughs> uh, which I do realize that it's a very valid concern for many people, but are you really doing your best when you're worried about? Uh, about your next, you know, is, uh, um, uh, you know, is 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 Patrick Mahomes going to do his play his best Super Bowl game? If he's worrying about next next year's season opener, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like if you're like if you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Worried about getting the next booking instead of doing as best as you can tonight. Yes, I understand yeah. that. And yeah. I, I, yeah, and I think having that perspective uh, really does help you become funnier. All right. Thanks, Gerald. Yeah, no problem. Before Toronto Sketchfest, Gerald and the rest of Crunchy Tigers will first host their monthly show. This one's called Cheap Chocolate, Cheap Laughs. 
at the Social Capital Theater, Friday, February 24th at 8.30 p.m. Tickets are available at tinyurl.com crunchy05. Later that evening, Gerald will be heading to Comedy Bar to do the late-night stand-up show Gay AF. Then, during Toronto Sketch Fest, Crunchy Tigers will perform Thursday, March 9th at 8 p.m. at Comedy Bar, along with Ladies and Gentlemen International. Tickets for that are available at torontosketchfest.com. Follow Crunchy Tigers on Facebook at facebook.com slash crunchytigers and on Instagram at crunchytigers. For more on Gerald, check out evilascot.com. We talked about learning how to produce comedy shows during our chat, and Toronto Sketch Fest is hosting a webinar, How to Produce a Sketch Show, as part of their Learning and Fun series, this Wednesday, February 22nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's $25 Canadian, which is cheaper in U.S. dollars, around $18-$19. TorontoSketchFest.com for more info. Sketchybater will return to Zoom Friday, March 24th at 10 p.m. Sketchybater.com for more information on that. My First Sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at phillysketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.